Last week, we started with Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and we're going to do this series and a study through this book. And we learned last week, Paul is speaking to this church in Ephesus, and he's trying to deposit some things in them to know who they are. He talks about how they're chosen, how they're adopted, how they're redeemed, and how they're marked. And we're going to see how Paul continues to talk to this church, and he's trying to pour into them and lay some foundations in them for what's to come up ahead as we continue to study. So if you don't have our Bible app, download it. I encourage you, go to the App Store, Apple or Android, download Connect Point app. Uh, you can download the full sermon notes. Once you're on the app, just click on sermon notes and uh, everything will be right there to follow along with us. So turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. We're going to finish off chapter one today. While you turn there, I want to share a brief story about a very rich man who you probably know about. His name is John Davison Rockefeller. He is widely considered the wealthiest American of all time and is the richest person in modern history. Rockefeller founded the company, those of you older ones may remember its name, what's that name? Standard Oil Company. He founded it in 1870 and ran it till about 1897. He remained the largest shareholder and Rockefeller's wealth uh, continued to soar as kerosene and gasoline prices continued to grow in importance. At the peak of his time there, uh, he gained control of close to 90% of the market. 90% of that market. So what, if you were to take his whole net worth, everything at the peak of, of, of when he was owning 90% of that market, adjusted for today's inflation, it would be worth about $418 million today. $418 million today. It is said that for many years, he lived on crackers and milk. Because of stomach troubles caused by worrying about his great wealth. He rarely had a good night's sleep and guards stood constantly at his door. He was a very wealthy man, but many would say that he was actually very miserable also. Things changed, though, when he became, when he became a, a, a little more seasoned into it, gaining wealth. He began to share that wealth with other people, and he started great uh, philanthropy and philanthropic efforts to start giving back to those who needed help. Rockefeller spent the last 40 years of his life giving back in retirement. He really began to define what the structure of modern philanthropy would be even today. Alongside of steel magnate at that time, Andrew Carnegie. He created foundations that had a major effect on medicine, education, and scientific research. He began, they began to uh, come up ways of ending yellow fever and a bunch of different things, all because he began to switch his efforts. Rockefeller was also a devout Northern Baptist. He supported many church-based initiatives and institutions. He was faithful, a faithful congregant. 
Uh, he also abstained completely from alcohol and tobacco throughout his whole life and relied closely on his wife for advice, Laura Spellman Rockefeller, whom he had five kids with. He was a faithful congregant of Erie Street Baptist Mission Church. He, get this, wealthiest man, right? He taught Sunday school. He served as a trustee, a clerk, and even a janitor. How many of you knew that? That Rockefeller, richest, wealthiest man, yet here he is serving in the church, even as a janitor. They would say that faith and religion was his guiding force throughout his life, and he believed it to be the very source of his success. Don't tell me that uh, we're too good to serve. Here he is, one of the wealthiest men still serving in the church. I truly appreciate every single one of our dream team people here at Connect Point Church. Even though we may be locked in at home, we still have many of those behind the scenes, getting things together, leading Zoom groups, small groups. And I appreciate those who serve in the church because without them, we couldn't do what we do. I'm telling you, faith matters. Faith matters in business. They both go together. It's because our faith demands us to respond. Here's the title of my message today. Where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? Ephesians 1, 15 to 16, we could pick up reading there together. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I've not stopped thanking God for you. And I pray constantly. This is Paul talking, writing from this uh, uh, jail in Rome to this church in Ephesus, which this letter is being circulated uh, to other churches. And he's saying, I am thinking of you. Man, I'm praying for you. My thoughts are with you. Paul starts off to, with this letter to the church in Ephesus by thanking them. And he begins to value those around him as one of his greatest Treasures. I'm going to share from this uh, ending part of chapter 1, three treasures Paul points out here that I believe we can learn from. The first treasure we want to talk about is the treasure of those around us. Treasure of those around us. Paul goes on to say, I'm not just thankful for you, but I'm going to also pray for you. And listen to how Paul says he's going to pray for the people. He lays out a sevenfold prayer that he prays over them. He's like, man, you guys are constantly on my thoughts, on my heart. You guys are the treasure. And he prays seven things. And this is really my prayer even for you. Number one, he prays for wisdom and knowledge. If there's ever a time that we need wisdom, it's in this day and age we're living in. Having wisdom and knowledge. Second thing he prays for is revelation. Boy, that we would begin to see and things would be revealed to us of what God has planned for you and I. We need to begin to understand the revelation from God. The third thing Paul prays for, for them is have the eyes of understanding be enlightened. Boy, that's my prayer for you. As you're watching at home, that your eyes would be open, that they would be enlightened to see how wide, how deep is God's love for you. Number four thing he prays is to know the hope of God's calling. 
that you and I are called. He says, know the hope of his calling. But number five, know the inheritance that you and I have. This great treasure and riches, which are, many times people think it's physical things. But here, often Paul is talking about spiritual riches. There are so many spiritual riches, things that we are blessed with that Paul's talking about here. Number six, he goes on to pray this sevenfold prayer. He says, to know the greatness of his power. God's power is so great and is unmatched that you would know, you and I would know how great his power is. And the seventh thing he prays for them is that he, we would understand how the working of God's power works out. That he is mighty to save. That his arm isn't short to reach you. So Paul recognizes everywhere he goes that those around him is his greatest treasure. You look at all the letters. Paul writes over 60% of the New Testament. And in all of his letters and he writes, he starts off with a thank, thankfulness in his heart and just saying thank you. He's doing like what we would call shout outs. He's shouting out to this person and to that person. And he realizes that the ministry and the kingdom isn't built by himself. It's built by those around us and we do it together. Paul is understanding the treasure of those around him. And he prays for them. I want you to stop and think for a moment while you're at home, listening to this, in your car, wherever you're at. I want to encourage you to stop for a moment and think about people around you to be thankful for and that you could pray for this week. Who are those people? Who comes to mind? Paul is taking time to pause and think and pray and thank them. You know, the more and more I... I'm naturally wired to be uh, uh, almost task-driven, and it's something that I have to guard against. If I'm not careful, I'm very task-driven, but the more and more I draw closer to God's heart and understand his heart, God really prioritizes people over tasks, people over production. Sometimes I'm so concerned about the process and the things that have to be done, but God values people and those around us more than anything else. That's something I'm still learning, how much God values and loves people. And sometimes I'm so concerned about checking off the list, but the closer we draw to his heart, we understand his heart is for people around us. Paul recognizes everywhere he goes that people are the greatest treasure. First Timothy 6, 17, he says this, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Think about that for a moment. Here he is talking to this, uh, uh, Timothy is understudy here, and, and he's saying, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. We're seeing this now in the day and age we're living in. The uh, job losses, um, the stock market, and, and many different things that people are putting their hope and their riches in. But I want you to know, Paul's trying to say, don't put your hope in those things. He says, but put it on God who richly supplies us with all the things to enjoy. You know, I, I remember hearing a pastor say this one time, and it so stuck with me. And he says, there is only one thing that we'll take to heaven. And he says, what is it? And I began to sit there and think. I'm like, what? I'm like, we can't take nothing to heaven. He said, we can't take our cars to heaven. We can't take our houses. We can't take our money, our jobs, our plaques on the wall, the trophies we've won. He says, the only one thing you can take to heaven is people. 
And he began to go on. It was this, a, a professor and pastor began to speak how the importance of how God values people. And there's only one thing that will go to heaven, and that's people. And I want to encourage you, like how Paul is encouraging this church in Ephesus there, to value people over production, over process, over tasks on a list, to value people. Value those around you. Take some time this week. I encourage you. Take some time this week to value those around you. Maybe it's picking up the phone. Maybe it's text messaging. Maybe it's an instant message. Uh, maybe it's an email. Um, if you're going to drive by their house, wave from the car, keep your social distance, but let them know you love them and you value them. That's the first treasure that Paul sees is the treasure around you and I. The second one is the treasure inside you. The treasure inside you. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18 says this. Pray that your hearts would be flooded with the light so that you can understand the confident hope that he has given to those he called. His holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Now, I don't know if you truly understand or we need to kind of unpack that verse a little. He says that there's this treasure inside you and I. I talked about it last week where, we're, yes, we're chosen. Yes, we're adopted. Yes, we're redeemed. Yes, we're marked. But yes, we are called by God. Paul is trying to tell these people uh, in Ephesus, man, you're called by God. God's called you. He has a stamp on you and a mark on you. And you need to know, yes, this is written to the church in Ephesus, but it was a circular letter to other churches. Man, these words are for you and I. We're truly under Paul's ministry even today. His ministry was to the Gentiles. That's the ministry we're under now. These words are spoken over you also. You need to know that you are called by God, that there's a church treasure inside of you and when you look at that verse it says here that you and I are God's rich and glorious inheritance I had to stop and think and and pause and, and really go through that verse and back up and say Lord we are your inheritance a glorious and rich inheritance you need to know that you are God's greatest treasure you are his treasure and he looks out for you. You are his inheritance. Whether a treasure knows its worth or not, it's still valuable. I remember hearing this pastor take this one time. I saw it. I said, man, that was so good. And he says, you know, here's a $20 bill. And if you take that $20 bill and you crumple it up and smash it up. And you take it and you step on it and stomp it and drag it through the dirt. And you step all over it and you pick it up. And maybe even if, I don't want to tear it, but I thought about it. I didn't know if that was a crime or not. But um, even if this, this, this dollar bill was ripped in half and then you got tape and you taped it back together, would this $20 bill still be worth $20? And the answer would be absolutely yes. Why? Because there's still value. There's still value. And you know, oftentimes, man, when I began to study this, I really felt like the Holy Spirit was speaking to my heart to say, some of you that are watching this message truly don't know your worth or your value. 
and you truly haven't seen yourself how God sees you from his perspective. You may not see yourself as a treasure, but God sees you as a treasure, as a reward, as an inheritance, a rich and glorious inheritance that he's waiting for. You may not see yourself as that way, but you need to know that you have value, you have worth, and God is waiting for his inheritance. You need to know that you have worth to God. You're valuable to him and you are priceless. There's not another one of you. There is, maybe there are people who may mimic you and be like you, but there's not another person like you. You are priceless. You can't be replaced. There's not another person like you. Why? Because you are a treasure. God says that you are a treasure. I wrote down here, I really felt like the Lord spoke this to me. He says, many of you see your, don't see yourself as treasure, so you allow yourself to be treated as trash. You allow yourself to be treated as trash because you don't know the treasure that you really are and how valuable you are and how much you are worth and the pricelessness of who you are. So you settle for being treated like trash when you're really a treasure. You need to know that God sees value in you. And my prayer and my hope as Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus is that you would see your great worth. You aren't trash you are treasure, and that's what God sees in you. I heard this quote once by Joseph Campbell. He says, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. In truth, man, I don't just preach this to you. I got to preach this message to myself. There are caves that I fear Places that at times I'm afraid to go to for fear of what would happen. Fear I have a moment of what I feel like is weakness and a breakdown. Fear of insecurity. But God calls us to go into that cave and face those fears. Because when you go to that place, you will find the true treasure. And that's you. God created you. Has a plan for you. And you are his greatest treasure. I want to encourage you to face the fear and go to that cave, whatever it is. Maybe it's the past hurts. Maybe it's difficulties, difficulties you've been through in your life. And I want to encourage you to, to go there to that cave and be developed in the dark. And God wants to make something beautiful out of you. And you will find in that dark place, in that cave, a true treasure. And that's the treasure that God has in you. Paul is about to give more instructions in the later chapter of how we are to live and how we are to act. But I almost feel like Paul in this first chapter is trying to lay out a foundation. He says, I'm about to tell you what you need to do, how you need to be, what you shouldn't do. He, it's coming in later chapters, but he's laying in this first chapter. He's like, guys, you got to settle this in your heart. Know that God is calling you. Know that you're chosen and redeemed and adopted and called by God. Know that you're marked for him before he ever gives any other instructions. He wants you and I to know in this first chapter, we are his own if we will choose him also and surrender to him. 
We later in the chapters, we're going to talk about things like wives submitting and husbands loving and children also being in unity and, and things of what to do and not to do. But honestly, if we don't settle these insecure things, we could never get to that place of truly loving in a more healthy way. I want to encourage you, go to that cave. Paul, in this first chapter, is laying this foundation. He's trying to get the people to put their faith and trust in God in a greater way. Why? Because you and I are the apple of God's eye. The apple of God's eye. Psalm 17, 8 says this. The psalmist writes, keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of thy wings. That is King James. This is to what the NLT version says. Guard me as you would guard your own eyes. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. What does the apple of the eye mean? The apple is one of the, uh, the apple of the eye or the eye is the most sensitive place on the body. One of the most sensitive places. I don't know if you've ever uh, been there before. Uh, recently I've been uh, cutting trees at our house. And uh, as I'm cutting trees, the wood chip flies up and immediately your face, your face twitches. And you're trying to hide and there's branches that are falling. And immediately you're putting up your arms so that it doesn't hit your eyes. Why? Because... The eye is the most precious and sensitive place that you begin to guard without even knowing. Why? Because it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable. And yet God calls you and I the apple of his eye. Eyesight is valuable. And we naturally begin to prevent injury and protect that area. The word apple or in the apple of the eye is translated to the Hebrew word ishan, which is related to the word ish, meaning man. Get this. I thought this was super powerful. Etymologically, when you study that word out, the ishan of the eye, when you look at it, is the little man of the eye. The little man of the eye. When you look at that word, uh, 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 apple, and in that, in that Hebrew word, think about this for a moment. When you look at somebody in the eye, have you ever been there before where you're looking at them eye to eye, and you can see your own reflection in their eye? What he's basically trying to say here is, it's the little man in the reflection of the other person's eye. The apple of their eye, their very pupil is reflecting you. God calls us the apple of his eye. Why is that the psalmist is writing that don't take me away from the apple of your eye? Why? Because we're so precious. We are like the little man in his reflection. The little reflection in the pupil of God's eye, he sees you and I. We're vulnerable at times. We need protection at times. We need somebody to keep us safe and to guard us. And we need somebody to hide us. And you need to know that's all found in the person of, of God and of Jesus. He wants to protect you, guard you. He wants to shield you. He wants to be your vision. Keep your eyes on him. Wrote this little quote. I couldn't find it anywhere. I was like, I try to find it because I try not to misquote anyone. Um, but uh, I thought, I can't find it anywhere, so it must be mine. So here we go. It says, what you value, you will invest in. Or you could say it opposite. What you invest in, you will value. What you invest in, you will value. The second point of my message is 
the treasure is inside of you, it is you, you need to know that there has been so much investment made in you. Some of you maybe sitting at home may not even know it. The investment that God has made in you. How was the investment made in you? That he would send his one and only son, Jesus, to die for your sins and my sins. He's invested and deposited something in you. And if there's an investment made, there's value there, and you look after that investment. Does that make sense? I think I got to say that again for those maybe who didn't fully catch that. What you invest in, you value, or what you value, you will invest in. In other words, some people say, well, I don't really value my marriage. Well, maybe it's because you haven't invested in your marriage, so you don't value your marriage. Maybe you say, well, I don't truly value my kids. They drive me up the wall. Maybe because you're not investing in them as much because what you invest in, you will value. There's a reason why workaholics value their job. Why? Because they're always investing in their job, so they value that. What you value, you will invest in. You need to know that God's made a huge investment in you and I. He gave up his best treasure so that you and I could be his own treasure and special possession, the apple of his eye. You are his greatest treasure. He's waiting for his rich and glorious inheritance in you and I. You and I are his rich and glorious inheritance. There's a treasure around you. There's a treasure in you, but there's also a treasure above you. A treasure above you. And listen to what Paul says. Let's read Ephesians 1, 19 to 23 now. Paul goes on to write and he says this. I also pray that you will be, or you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe. See, it's not available, this power, to everyone else. It's for those who believe there is this power. And you're going to kind of see it as we kind of unpack this verse. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in heavenly realms. Verse 21. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else. You need to know that, man, who are you going to turn to if not to God? Buddha, Muhammad. Uh, th there is no other God who's died, was buried, hung on the cross, died, buried, resurrected, uh, except for Jesus. He is still all-powerful. Let's read on, verse 21. Not only in this world is his power, but it's also in the world to come. Verse 22. God has put all things, say all things, under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. And it is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere for himself. You need to know who is, who is a saint and who is the church. We kind of talked about this a little last week. Um, a saint is anyone who has named the name of Christ and made him Lord and Savior. We're a saint. It's not just a saint in the Catholic church who had to have certain qualifications of two miracles and then dying and being called a saint. If you've named the name of Christ, you're a saint. The church is all those. There are thousands of churches across the world, but collectively the capital C church. We're united 
under Christ. I believe truly, as I was studying this, I think we might be shocked on that day when God calls his children home, the people who are there. You know, sometimes I think we get so caught up and doctrinally we may be different and we have our differences between these, uh, all these different churches and denominations when in truth there are many, many commonalities and similarities that, that we name the name of Christ. And I think on that day, those who name the name of Christ as their Lord and Savior, I think will be there on that day. And I think we'll be shocked at those who he calls his own. Paul offers us a challenge to our faith. So tremendous is this truth that Paul enlists many different words from the Greek vocabulary. Listen to what he uses. He talks about this dunamis power where we get our word dynamite. He talks about energia or this working energy inside you and us. He talks about kratos or this mighty work in us and this iskis, this power. Basically, Paul is speaking about a divine, dynamic, eternal energy that's available to us for those who call on Christ. Why? It's because the treasure we have above us. So why do we need this power? In truth, you and I are too weak to appreciate and appropriate this wealth and treasure that we've been blessed with. Why do we need his power? We don't, left to ourselves, we'll be the worst, worst part. We'll unravel ourselves, okay? The second part of why we need this power, we need this power because like verse 21 says, there is an enemy who wants to rob us of this treasure. You need to know that we have a treasure above us and there's a power that's been bestowed on us. I think Paul has such a great grasp on the reality of heaven he knows that this world is not our home. And he's trying to prep this church in Ephesus and the churches surrounding there. Talked about the goddess Diana and, and, and how filthy this city was. And yet he's calling them to be lights and saying, look beyond just what's happening in your city. Look beyond what's happening in your country. Look beyond what's happening in your world. This world is not our home. Hebrews 13, 12 to 14. So also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by his own blood. So let us go to him outside the, outside the camp and bear this disgrace he bore for this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. There is a treasure above us, and the treasure above us is heaven. You need to know that this world is not our home. I know we're getting caught up right now of what we maybe have or don't have anymore, but man, the treasure, true treasure is above us. This world is not our home. I hope you're ready for the treasure of heaven. As we kind of wrap up and bring this to a close, Matthew 13, 44 to 46. Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it. And then in his joy went, sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had and bought it. 
I think Paul is trying to prep this church, this people for the treasure we have in heaven. And Jesus here is speaking to the people there that, man, we have a treasure. It's like a pearl that's hidden. Sell all that you have. You think, you may think what you have in this life is worth it. It's not worth it. Where we're going to spend eternity will be absolutely worth it. Whatever you have, it's not worth it for the price you'll pay for eternity. I want to encourage you, make the treasure of heaven your aim. My title was, Where is Your Treasure? Where is Your Treasure? John D. Rockefeller, in the beginning of his life, started off searching, I believe, for the wrong treasure and the wrong riches. He began to think that it was in his wealth, but what he soon learned that in the last 40 years of his life, he spent giving that treasure away, sowing it in others, investing it in others. And he truly learned what riches and treasures were by giving it away. Three things Paul talks about. What are the three treasures? It's the treasure around us. Who are the people in our life that right now we need to take a little pause like Paul gives some shout outs to say thank you I appreciate you I love you now's the time tomorrow is not promised even though they may drive you up the wall and make you wanna uh, say things that you shouldn't I tell you what tomorrow isn't promise make right ask for forgiveness you got treasures all around us there's treasures in us you are the treasure. I'm that treasure. We are the apple of God's eye. He gave up his very best and he invested in you and I and we are his treasure that he's waiting for. And there's a treasure above us. The treasure is heaven. I want to encourage you, if you're not ready to make heaven your home yet, I want to encourage you, like Paul, who's prepping this church in Ephesus to get ready, I'm trying to prep you and this church to be ready for the day that he comes down and he knocks and says, it is time to go. Like the, when the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will rise, we're all going to be gone. There's not going to be time to say, I'm sorry, Lord. Now's the time. Be ready. I want to close in prayer. If you're watching this in closing and maybe you say, Pastor Dion, maybe my life isn't right. Maybe you're watching this and say, Pastor Dion, you know, you're talking about things that are so foreign to me. I don't know what you're talking about. We would love to walk with you on this journey. You're not alone. I'll never forget at 12 years old when I gave my life to Christ and I'm like, this is so stupid. I like I, my first Bible, King James and reading, I'm like, this makes no sense. And the more time we spend, the more time you read, the more I understand, it begins to be enlightened and your eyes begin to open. I want you to know that the sin, the weight that you're carrying was never meant for your shoulders to carry.